Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 13, which is titled Generosity. We're going to be exploring chapters 71 through 80 today. And this is where students will typically read the chapters before class and or after class. Then in actual class, we will read each chapter between 71 and 80. And then after the chapter is read, I will share some teachings on that specific chapter and open up to any questions that you guys might have. This is really designed more like a study group where students have already perhaps studied and then they're coming in with certain questions. But if you haven't read the book, that's okay. This might be your first time joining this class because we're going to actually be reading the chapters in class, at least the words of the Buddha part. And then what you'll find is in each one of these chapters, there's words from me as well to help you further understand what it is that the Buddha is teaching, even though his words are very clear, very concise, and very precise. But it helps to have a practitioner, teacher, that has been dedicated to understanding these teachings help you along to understand your reflections. So you'll find that if you read before and or after class, you'll just get a whole lot more out of the individual chapters. If you're looking for these books, you can download them from buddhadailywisdom.com. There's also links there where you can purchase them on Amazon, a printed version or a Kindle version. You can even download the PDF and go print it yourself if you'd like a printed version. I haven't copyrighted these books. I allow anybody and everybody to get access to them at no cost. So whatever is easiest for you, either downloading it, downloading and printing, or purchasing them on Amazon. The important thing is, is that you have access to the books and you're able to learn and understand and progress towards enlightenment. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. The way that we start is we start with a meditation. So I'm going to start with just a very brief meditation, very little guidance, if any at all. And then after that brief little meditation, we'll actually start with the class of learning. This meditation is just to help clear out the mind a little bit. It's not one of your two or three meditations that you might be doing as part of your regular practice. This is just before you study. It's kind of wise to meditate a little bit. Even just five or 10 minutes can really help you. So if you'd like to join for the meditation, you're welcome to do that. Go ahead and take whatever meditation position that you like. I'll start with the chanting and then just a very little bit of guidance as we ease into meditation. Sabakato, 
establishing the breath based on your independent practice you're going to breathe in whenever you're ready to breathe in and exhale i'm just here for guidance so whenever you get to the next inhale breathe in gradually through the nose and then exhale through the nose breathing in in out with the breath well established fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose the breath is the present moment fixate the mind on the breath the present moment whenever you observe that the mind is off the breath cut that off let it go and come back to the breath Breathing in and out.
would like to slowly make your way out of meditation once again i would like to welcome all of you whether you're joining in zoom youtube on facebook or you're watching this on the replay or listening on the podcast welcome to everyone this is our second to last class in the Pali Canon in english study group before we're going to be restarting it we have this class and our very next class which finishes out volume 13 of our book series and then we're going to be restarting from the very beginning so this week and next week we're going to be continuing in the book titled generosity where all the chapters are around practicing generosity and how to practice that so what i'm going to do is turn things over to the moderators so that they can organize people that are willing to read for us to progress in the class there'll be a student who reads the chapter then afterwards i will share teachings on that chapter not as detailed as what i've put in the books but at least enough to help those of you that haven't seen the actual chapters in the book and then i'll open up to any questions that you guys might have related to what i've shared in the book or what i've shared in class so i'll turn things over to all of you guys and as you have questions you can put those into facebook youtube or zoom in the comment section or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any question that you like yes thank you sir i'll start off reading the first half of chapter 71 
Persons who are worthy of gifts, 15th discourse. Monks, possessing seven qualities, a monk is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What seven? Here, a monk is one who knows the teachings, who knows the meaning, who knows himself, who knows moderation, who knows the proper time, who knows the community, and who knows the wholesome and the unwholesome kinds of persons. And how is a monk one who knows the teachings? Here, a monk knows the teachings, the discourses, mixed prose and verse, expositions, verses, inspired utterances, quotations, birth stories, marvelous accounts, and questions and answers. If a monk did not know the teachings, the discourses, mixed prose and verse, expositions, verses, inspired utterances, quotations, birth stories, marvelous accounts, and questions and answers, he would not be called one who knows the teachings. But because he knows the teachings, the discourses, mixed prose and verse, expositions, verses, inspired utterances, quotations, birth stories, marvelous accounts, and questions and answers, he is called one who knows the teachings. Thus he is one who knows the teachings. And how is a monk one who knows the meaning? Here a monk knows the meaning of this and that statement thus. This is the meaning of this statement. This is the meaning of that statement. If a monk did not know the meaning of this and that statement thus, he would not be called one who knows the meaning. But because he knows the meaning of this and that statement thus, this is the meaning of this statement, this is the meaning of that statement, he is called one who knows the meaning. Thus he is one who knows the teachings and one who knows the meaning. And how is a monk one who knows himself? Here, a monk knows himself thus, I have so much confidence, virtuous behavior or moral conduct, learning, generosity, wisdom and discernment, if a monk did not know himself thus, I have so much confidence, virtuous behavior, learning, generosity, wisdom, and discernment, he would not be called one who knows himself. But because he knows himself thus, I have so much confidence, virtuous behavior, learning, generosity, wisdom, and discernment, he is called one who knows himself. Thus he is one who knows the teachings, one who knows the meaning, and one who knows himself. And how is a monk one who knows moderation? Here, a monk knows moderation in accepting robes, alms food, lodging, and medicines and provisions for the sick. If a monk did not know moderation in accepting robes, alms food, lodging, and medicines and provisions for the sick, he would not be called one who knows moderation. But because he knows moderation in accepting robes, alms food, lodging, and medicines and provisions for the sick, he is one, he is called one who knows moderation. Thus, he is one who knows the teachings, one who knows the meaning, one who knows himself, and one who knows moderation. And how is a monk one who knows the proper time? Here, a monk knows the proper time thus. This is the time for learning. This is the time for questioning. This is the time for effort. This is the time for seclusion. If a monk did not know the proper time, this is the time for learning. This is the time for questioning. This is the time for effort. This is the time for seclusion. He would not be called one who knows the proper time. But because he knows the proper time, he is called one who knows the proper time. Thus he is one who knows the teachings, one who knows the meaning, 
one who knows himself, one who knows moderation, and one who knows the proper time. And how is a monk one who knows the community? Here, a monk knows the assembly. This is a community of Katyas. This is a community of Brahmins. This is a community of householders. This is a community of ascetics. Among these, one should approach this community in such a way. One should stop in such a way. One should act in such a way. One should sit down in such a way. One should speak in such a way. One should remain silent in such a way. If a monk did not know the community, this is a community of Katyas, Brahmins, householders, ascetics. Among these, one should approach this community in such a way, stop in such a way, act in such a way, sit down in such a way, speak in such a way, remain silent in such a way, he would not be called one who knows the community. And then here I can hand this over to Tonka to finish reading this chapter. But because he knows the community, this is community of Katiyas. This is a community of Brahmins. This is a community of householders. This is a community of ascetics. Among these, one should approach this community in such a way, one should stop in such a way, one should act in such a way, one should sit down in such a way, one should speak in such a way, one should remain silent in such a way. He is called one who knows the community. Thus, he is one who knows the teachings, one who knows the meaning, one who knows himself, one who knows moderation, one who knows the proper time, and one who knows the community. And how is a monk one who knows the wholesome and unwholesome kinds of persons? Here a monk understands persons in terms of peers. Two persons, one is interested to see the noble ones, one is not interested to see the noble ones. The person who is not interested to see the noble ones is in that respect blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. The person who is interested to see the noble ones is in that respect praiseworthy, deserving admiration and commendable. Two person who went to see the noble ones one is interested to hear the good, wholesome teachings. One is not interested to hear the good, wholesome teachings. The person who is not interested to hear the good, wholesome teachings is in that respect blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. The person who is interested to hear the good, wholesome teachings is in that respect praiseworthy, deserving admiration and commendable. Two persons who are interested to hear the good, wholesome teachings, one listens to the teachings with eager ear, one does not listen to the teachings with eager ear. The person who does not listen to the teachings with eager ear is in respect blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. The person who listens to the teachings with eager ear is in that respect praiseworthy, deserving admiration and commendable. Two persons who listen to the teachings with eager ear, one having heard the teachings retains them in mind, one having heard the teachings does not retain them in mind. The person who having heard the teachings does not retain them in mind is in that respect blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. The person who having heard the teachings 
retains them in mind is in that respect praiseworthy, deserving admiration and commendable. Two persons who having heard the teachings retain them in mind. One examines the meaning of the teachings that have been retained in mind. One does not examine the meaning, the meaning of the teachings that have been retained in the mind. The person who does not examine the meaning of the teachings that have been retained in the mind is in that respect blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. The person who examines the meaning of the teachings that have been retained in mind is in that respect praiseworthy, serving admiration, commendable. Two persons who examine the, media, the meaning of the teachings that have been retained in mind, one has understood the, media, the meaning of the teachings and then practices in accordance with the teachings. One has not understood the meaning and the teachings and does not practice in accordance with the teachings. The person who has not understood the meaning and the teachings and does not practice in accordance with the teachings is in that respect blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. The person who has understood the meaning and the teachings and then practices in accordance with the teachings is in that respect praiseworthy, deserving, admiration, commendable. Two persons who have understood the meaning and the teachings and then practice in accordance with the teachings. One is practicing for his own welfare, but not for the welfare of others. One is practicing for his own welfare and for the welfare of others. The person who is practicing for his own welfare, but not for the welfare of others is in that respect blameworthy, res responsible for wrongdoing. The person who is practicing for his own welfare and for the welfare of others is in that respect praiseworthy, deserving, admiration, commendable. It is in this way that a monk understands persons in terms of peers. It is in this way that a monk is one who knows the wholesome and unwholesome kinds of persons. Possessing these seven qualities, a monk is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. All right. Thank you, Miranda and Tonka. So here, this is a very detailed discourse where the Buddha is going through these seven qualities of which you can understand and then observe whether individuals that you're looking to make offerings to in terms of ordained practitioners and or teachers, that they have these various qualities. That's what the Buddha is doing throughout the various discourses that you've been studying here, is helping you to determine where to direct your offerings. Because if you direct your offerings to people who aren't practicing the teachings very well, or aren't necessarily even sharing the teachings, or knowing the teachings, or otherwise uh, helping people to learn them, then the offerings aren't having 
as much impact in the world and they're not producing as much merit. Whereas if you can discern people that are practicing the teachings well, thus they know the teachings very well, then your offerings are going to be more impactful for the world, but also for you, because you're going to be coming into contact with an individual who deeply understands the teachings, deeply practicing them, and maybe teaching them as well. So you would like to learn these as you decide to increase the generosity, perhaps if you need to add some generosity to your life practice and find more of the middle, then you would be looking to produce merit as part of your overall practice of generosity. There's generosity that you might practice towards anybody and anybody as you navigate the world. You will have this practice of giving and sharing of your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required. I've talked about this as simply as just holding a door for somebody. When you're walking through the door is that perhaps you hold the door. You're not required to do that, but it's giving your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required. And someone who's practicing generosity would be looking for things and would be doing things regularly that's not just benefiting themselves, but benefiting others as well. Because this helps you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But then also there's a certain type of generosity directed towards ordained practitioners and teachers who are sharing these teachings in the world. And that type of generosity, making offerings to them, is going to help the continuation of these teachings to be able to be shared in the world in such a way that countless people can gain benefit from learning and practicing to train their mind to get to enlightenment, eliminating discontentedness. So the Buddha during his lifetime had countless people that were learning with him and he always encouraged people to make offerings to virtuous practitioners who are practicing the teachings very well because they would need to actually know the teachings very well and have done a lot of work in order to be practicing them well. So here he gives seven various qualities and I'll open up to any questions that you guys have on any of these individual qualities that you need to understand about. But I would like to focus on one in particular to discuss this one because we're talking about generosity and accepting offerings. I would like to talk about this one here and then of course open up to any questions that you have but being able to go through and talk about each one would be quite challenging in our short time. That's what the explanations in the book has for you. But here anybody who's accepting offerings they should know how to accept offerings with moderation. Here the Buddha is talking about moderation and accepting robes, alms, food, lodging, medicines, and provisions for the sick. Essentially, the things that are needed to sustain life. And nowadays, people even offer financial support. Anybody who's accepting offerings should ensure that they're accepting offerings in moderation. That if you know that somebody's maybe offering and extending themselves too much with too much of an offering, you might need to talk with that person and be sure as a teacher or as a ordained practitioner that you're ensuring that your students are understanding how to practice generosity from the middle. That if students extend themselves and they give too much, particularly financial resources and these other resources as well that require financial resources to acquire them, then they're not going to be whole themselves. So the Buddha taught about how to practice generosity from the middle. Whereas if a student has no generosity or very little, 
then our mind's going to be selfish. But also if they practice generosity to a very high degree, overextending themselves, then the Buddha called this milk drying. That if a teacher or a dame practitioner just accepts offerings and accepts offerings and accepts offerings, knowing that this person is unable to afford what it is that they're offering you, and maybe they're going into debt or maybe they're lacking resources themselves for the things that they need, the Buddha referred to this as essentially drying up the cow, the milk drying, that you're milking the cow and now the milk is dry and then nobody drinks any milk. So it's important for teachers and ordained practitioners to ensure they understand their students and that when offerings are being made that they accept offerings in moderation and where they see somebody overextending themselves to maybe have a discussion with that person and be sure that they're not overextending themselves and they understand how to practice generosity in the middle way. This is very important for a student's development and it's also very important for a teacher or an ordained practitioner's development that if a teacher or ordained practitioner is not having craving desire attachment for offerings then they should be willing and able to talk with their students about how to find this middle so that they're not overextending themselves in terms of making offerings. So I'll open up to whatever questions you guys have on this entire chapter, but I just thought I would cover that one since we haven't necessarily talked about that at other times in this particular book. So you can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. That does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay. So we'll go to chapter 72. Um, Yes, sir. I'll read chapter 72. A monk who is perfected in morality, a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Venerable sir, whereas some ascetics and Brahmins, feeding on the food of the dedicated, make their living by such base arts, such wrong means of livelihood as palmistry, divining by signs, portents, dreams, body marks, mouse gnawings, fire ablations, ablations from a ladle, of husks, rice powder, rice grains, ghee or oil, from the mouth or of blood, reading the fingertips, house and garden lore, skill and charms, ghost lore, earth house lore, snake lore, poison lore, rat lore, bird lore, crow lore, foretelling a person's lifespan, charms against arrows, knowledge of animals' cries. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as judging the marks of gems, sticks, clothes, swords, spears, arrows, weapons, women, men, boys, girls, male and female slaves, elephants, horses, buffaloes, bulls, cows, goats, rams, Packs, quail, iguanas, bamboo rats, tortoises, deer. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as predicting, the chiefs will march out, the chiefs will march back, our chiefs will advance, and the other chiefs will retreat. Our chiefs will win, and the other chiefs will lose, the other chiefs will win, and ours will lose. Thus there will be a victory for one side and defeat for the other. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. 
whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as predicting an eclipse of the moon, the sun, a star, that the sun and moon will go on their proper course, will go astray, that a star will go on its proper course, or will go astray, that there will be a shower of meteors, a blaze in the sky, an earthquake, thunder, a rising, setting, darkening, brightening of the moon, the sun, the stars, and such will be the outcome of these things. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as predicting good or bad rainfall, a good or bad harvest, security, danger, disease, health, or accounting, computing, calculating, poetic composition, philosophizing, a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as arranging the giving and taking in marriage, engagements and divorces, declaring the time for saving and spending, bringing good or bad luck, procuring abortions, using spells to bind the tongue, binding the jaw, making the hands jerk, causing deafness, getting answers with a mirror, a girl medium, a heavenly being, worshiping the son or great Brahma, God, breathing fire, invoking the goddess of love. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins, feeding on the food of the dedicated, make their living by such base arts, such wrong means of livelihood as appeasing the heavenly beings and redeeming vows to them, making earth house spells, causing virility or impotence, preparing and consecrating building sites, giving ritual rinsings and bathings, making sacrifices, giving emetics, purges, expectorants, and flemagogues, giving ear, eye, nose medicine, ointments and counter ointments, eye surgery, surgery, pediatry, using balms to counter the side effects of previous remedies, a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. And then, sir, that monk who is perfected in morality sees no danger from any side owing to his being restrained by morality. Just as a duly anointed, duly anointed Katya king, having conquered his enemies, by that very fact sees no danger from any side, so the monk, on account of his morality, sees no danger anywhere. He experiences in himself the blameless bliss that comes from maintaining this noble morality. In this way, sir, he is perfected morality. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So let's talk a little bit about the Buddha's goal for ordained practitioners, people who are sharing these teachings, is that he created this system of mutual support where the household practitioners, they are obviously working because that's what we need to do in order to support our life. They're out in the fields, they're running businesses and shops and doing different things in order to earn a living. They are providing offerings to the ordained practitioners and teachers so that they don't need to go out into the fields and run shops. Instead, they're dedicated to learning and practicing the teachings to get deep and deeper into the teachings so that they can get closer and closer to enlightenment. This frees them up from the obligations of work and doing the things that people do to go out to shops and fields and stuff like this. Instead, their work is to 
live this life where they're deeply dedicated to learning and practicing the teachings. And it's the support from the household practitioners that are allowing them to be able to do that. And they live a very basic, simple life, at least they're supposed to, where they just have the basic necessities to live life because that's what helps them get closer and closer to enlightenment. But also it puts less responsibility and burden on the household practitioners to then support them. So now these aesthetics and these ordained practitioners, these teachers are receiving donations to help them to now be supported in the world so that their sole purpose can then be to learn and practice the teachings and then ultimately share them with the household practitioners as teachings so that the household practitioners can then become more successful in life through their personal professional relationships. And as they become more successful, of course, they're going to do better in society. And now they have more offerings to be able to offer to the ordained practitioners. And in this way, there's this mutual support. Well, if a ordained practitioner or a teacher is living on the food of the dedicated, meaning they're accepting donations from those who are in the household life, truly attempting to learn these teachings and get to enlightenment, but yet they're doing all these other things that the Buddha is describing here, like palmistry, like uh, interpreting dreams, like all these other things that he's talking about, extensive number of things, then essentially they're just using the household practitioners to provide their base level of support, like food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. But yet they're out there doing all these other things that have nothing to do with the path to enlightenment whatsoever. So there's not this mutual exchange and this mutual support. The household practitioners are supporting the ordained practitioners and teachers. But in this situation, if an ordained practitioner is practicing any of these things, their time is occupied doing something completely opposite of what the household practitioners are needing. So it's taking them away from learning and practicing, developing their practice and sharing these teachings. So this would be a very unwise choice for ordained practitioners or teachers to do, but it would also be very unwise for a household practitioner to support that individual because there's not this mutual support that Maybe you're offering to that person, but yet they're going off and doing all these other things that most of these things are actually promoting wrong view. If an individual like an aesthetic or an ordained practitioner or a teacher was actually doing any of these things, it's actually promoting wrong view for themselves and for anybody that they do these things with in a lot of cases. So if somebody is promoting wrong view, yet the very first step on the path to enlightenment is for a practitioner to establish right view, then not only are they living off of these offerings from the household practitioners and not doing what it is that they are intending to do, but they're actually making the matters worse because by them going off and doing these things, not only are they absorbing offerings that could otherwise be used by people who are truly dedicated to sharing the teachings, and developing their practice really deeply, but they're off learning something that ultimately is going to promote wrong view within the community and make it harder for household practitioners to actually be able to get to enlightenment through having wrong view. So the Buddha, all throughout this book and all the various chapters that we've been reading, he's been talking about making offerings to virtuous practitioners, ones who are dedicated to practicing virtuous moral conduct. And here he's explaining moral conduct that would be unwise. And he's saying, you know, if an individual refrains from these things, then their livelihood is purified and they're perfected in morality. So if you're going to make offerings to an individual to produce merit and then thus benefit 
you through eliminating craving, desire, attachment to continue the teachings in the world and give you the opportunity to cultivate wisdom with someone who's deeply dedicated to the teachings through learning and practicing and and then sharing them, you would look for individuals who aren't doing these things because that's where your offerings are going to have the most benefit. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, Yes, sir. I see that Tonka has her hand raised. Let's go to her for her question. Thank you. I was wondering, Teacher David, about astrology. If someone is interested in astrology as a hobby, not as a livelihood, would it be uh, considered immoral uh, in Buddha's teaching or that would be okay as long as we are doing it just for our own curiosity? Yeah, so if you're doing it as a household practitioner for your own curiosity, you know, that's your own thing, that is actually promoting wrong view for you if you did that. Whether you choose to do that or not is your choice, but it's going to take the mind further into delusion because the things that we experience in this life isn't based on how the stars are aligned or the planets are aligned. The things that we experience in this life is a cause and effect based on the natural law of gamma. So if somebody goes into those things, then they're taking their mind further away from right view. Here, the Buddha is talking specifically about ordained practitioners and teachers. He's not talking about household practitioners practicing these things, but it would be unwise even for household practitioner in a lot of cases to practice some of the things that are talked about here, except for things, you know, like surgery and podiatry and things like that. But when it comes to astrology and a lot of the other things that are in here, then it's going to take you into wrong view and it would be unwise for somebody if they're looking to establish right view more and more to go into diluting the mind and promoting wrong view in their own mind. It's not whether it's moral or immoral in the way that the Buddha taught. It's more about what's most beneficial for you in developing right view and moving closer to enlightenment. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yes, thank you, sir. And then on Zoom, Thomas asks, Dear teacher, does the teaching about generosity help to reflect private, personal, financial situations and connect to new life? I think I understand your question. I'll answer it this way. And if I don't give you the answer that you're looking for, be sure you ask the question again. So the teachings about generosity, the Buddha talks in other chapters about practicing it from the middle way, essentially, is what he's talking about. He makes sure that you understand that the practice of generosity is for you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but also it's helping to create the ability for individuals in the community, like me and others, who we don't go out to a nine-to-five job. Instead, we dedicate our time extensively to deeply getting into our own practice and then sharing the teachings with others so that they can then experience the liberation of mind and enlightenment through understanding and practicing these teachings. But in doing so, your practice of generosity needs to be in the middle, where the Buddha talks about essentially ensuring that you're whole and that your family is whole. Whereas if you're like overextending yourself and you're not able to eat and drink and have shelter and clothing and medical care, it would be unwise to continue to make such huge, enormous offerings. But also, if you offered very little or nothing at all, your mind would be selfish. So most people can kind of 
figure out a way to, to offer a little bit of time, effort, energy, and resources. Even if they're quite busy in their life, they can find a way to do that. But there are some people who they can barely even find time to meditate perhaps, and they might need to create some more space in their life to build up their practice and get to a point where they can practice a bit of generosity. But generosity, not merit now, but generosity can be as simple as just holding the door for somebody when you're walking into a store. Pretty much anybody can do this kind of generosity. So we should be looking for ways to practice generosity and then make sure we're doing that from the middle so that it doesn't impact our life in significant ways that we're not whole. And this is what you would be looking for in your practice of generosity. These days, I don't have much money because I am not a business person anymore. You know, when I was a business person, I gave extensive amounts of money and time and things like this to practice generosity. But now because I don't have money, I have time. So I give an enormous amount of time to the students to help them to learn and practice these teachings, which is one of the best gifts you could ever give. But also, you know, I do things where like I go donate blood every three months and I'm able to do that. And that helps people. And of course, you know, holding doors for people or sharing food with people as I'm sitting down and eating if there's other people around. So there's always things that you're doing throughout your day to share and to give so that the mind isn't holding on with selfishness. Because if it's holding on and not wanting to give or not being interested to give, then it's going to have that craving, desire, attachment, ultimately leading to discontentedness. It's only when you practice generosity that it's going to help to eliminate that craving, desire, attachment. And when you look at the teachings of the Buddha, he talks in different places where his ability to attain enlightenment in his last life as a Buddha through his own independent journey without the help of teachers or guides, a good portion of that came from his ability to practice generosity in his current life and his previous lives that he talks about being so readily generous in all these different lives that accumulated to him being able to eliminate craving, desire, attachment throughout multiple lives to the point where he got to his last life and he didn't have as much craving, desire, attachment to eliminate because he was practicing all throughout multiple lives, which accumulated into the results of being able to get to enlightenment as a Buddha. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a question about this part with the girl medium. As I understand it, a medium is someone who has the ability to communicate and or sense afflicted spirits, or as it's more commonly termed here in the United States, ghosts. Um, How is this from livelihood? Is it just because they would be accepting money for relaying these communications? Or how how is that wrong livelihood, sir? Remember that this chapter is solely focused for the ordained practitioners, aesthetics, and teachers. He's not talking specifically about household practitioners here. And he's talking about these wrong livelihoods because of this mutual support that ordained practitioners should be deeply invested in learning and practicing the teachings and then sharing them because of accepting this food from the dedicated, accepting offerings from the dedicated. They're supposed to then be dedicated to developing their practice. So that's the first part to be sure you understand that this isn't a discourse directed to household practitioners. However, an individual, even as a household practitioner, there's certain things here that you can learn 
about, like I mentioned, the promotion of wrong view. If there's any of these particular livelihoods that are promoting wrong view, you wouldn't be interested in doing that for your own practice because it's going to promote wrong view in your own mind. But then also, if you share that with other people, it's also hurting them and harming them because it's promoting wrong view with them. A medium, someone who's able to connect with spirits and things like this, if that individual is doing that as a way of talking about the future or trying to do things like this, a person's mind can really get absorbed in that kind of stuff and their mind isn't in the present moment in terms of the people who are listening to them. So there's all these special abilities that an individual can potentially experience as their mind's becoming more and more awake. Even in the unenlightened state, being off the path, there are some people who can be a medium and actually can communicate with the afflicted spirits realm and other realms. If that individual is holding on, either in the unenlightened state, off the path, or someone who's progressing on the path, if they're holding on to these special abilities, then the mind is oftentimes hindered from moving forward to full liberation because they're still craving desire attachment to these special abilities. So as these special abilities come into the mind, it's important that a practitioner doesn't cling to them and hold on to them, keep their mind focused on liberation through eliminating the 10 fetters. And then as their mind is liberated, if they still have these abilities to communicate with other beings in other realms, then so be it, but not using it for personal gain or financial gain or as a way to promote wrong view. And somebody who's enlightened would understand right view and wrong view, even getting to the first stage of enlightenment, one would deeply understand the right view and wrong view. So I'm not willing to say that this is a wrong livelihood to be a medium because there were certain times in my development that I was able to have communication from beings from other realms. And there were situations where students were sitting in front of me and one of their dead relatives came and I was able to communicate something to that person that was actually helpful for them because their mind was having clinging to, in this particular example, a father who died when she was only like three years old and she never understood why. She was clinging to wanting to know. She was craving to know why he died. And I was able to tell her. She didn't ask me. This person just came to me. And then I asked her if her father was around, would she be interested to talk to this individual? She said, yes, I would be. And I said, okay, well, your father's here. You know, what is it that you would like to know? And she didn't tell me that her father died or that she was needing to know this. It just happened. So there are situations where you can't help somebody let go of craving, desire, attachments by them getting this kind of information. But you need to be very careful about how you deliver that information. You need to be sure you're not collecting financial gain from it. And you need to be sure you're not clinging to those special abilities and that you stay focused on the goal, which is liberation. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And then on Zoom, I believe this is a follow-up question from Thomas. He asks, dear teacher, how can I obtain this balance, this moderation through teaching? What particular Buddha's teaching relating to? Does the generosity balance help in daily life? Thank you, sir. 
Yeah, so you'll need to find the middle, not just with generosity, but with all aspects of the path, even loving kindness and compassion and all these other teachings that you're learning. You'll need to find that middle and know where it's at. When the mind is dull and lethargic, lacking motivation and encouragement, that's not the middle. That's complacency. When the mind is longing, yearning, and chasing after something, that's not the middle either. That's craving, desire, attachment. So as it relates to generosity, if you observe that the mind is dull and lethargic and lacking motivation and not interested to give and share, that's not the middle. If you're noticing that the mind is longing and yearning and just wanting to practice generosity in such a high degree and chasing after it and getting so many conditioned feelings when you are practicing generosity like happiness, excitement, elation, this is also not the middle. When you're practicing generosity from the middle, you should see this joy that's in the mind before you make your offering. You should see this calmness and confidence while you're making your offering. And you should see that the joy is still there in the mind after you've made the offering. That the joy isn't there because you made the offering, but the joy is already there. It's persistent. And then when you're in the middle with your generosity, you should still be able to meet all your own needs in terms of sustaining the life for yourself and your family. And you should feel this peacefulness that you know that you're giving and sharing and you're practicing generosity, but you're not overextending yourself and you're not being selfish either. It's almost like when the mind comes to the middle on any particular topic, whether it's loving kindness, compassion, generosity, or any of these other teachings, it's almost like the mind takes a big, deep breath. It's almost like this fresh air coming into the mind. There's this peacefulness and this joy that settles into the mind that you're like, ah, that's the middle, right? And then you feel what that middle's like, and then you might practice that for a while, but then you also understand that this middle is impermanent, that as you maybe make less money in your life, maybe you need to shift your generosity, or as you make more money or you have more resources or more time or effort, you might need to shift your generosity in that direction. So when you get to the middle, it should feel this peacefulness and this joy in the mind that is just persistent. And it's almost like the mind takes a fresh breath and you can feel this fresh air coming into the mind. So when you're practicing generosity in the middle, then you know with 100% certainty that you're not being selfish, you're not craving, and then your life becomes more peaceful because you're letting go of craving, desire, attachment, and there's all kinds of benefits to practicing generosity. If you haven't read the other chapters in this book, you can read through the chapters in this book because the Buddha talks at different times about the benefits of generosity and how it is beneficial and impactful to your life. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so now we'll go to chapter 73. Yes, sir. Let's go to Tonka to read chapter 73, please. Gifts of teachings is more superior than gifts of material things. Monks, there are these two kinds of gifts. Gifts of material things and gifts of teachings. Of these two kinds of gifts, this is supreme, a gift of teachings. There are these two kinds of sharing, sharing of material things and sharing of the teachings. Of these two kinds of sharing, this is supreme, sharing of the teachings. There are those, these two kinds of assistance, assist, assistance with material things 
and assistance with the teachings. Of these two kinds of assistance, this is supreme, assistance with the teachings. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So here, the Buddha is just saying how important the giving of the teachings are. So anybody who is willing to give and share and provide assistance in the teachings, the Buddha is saying this is supreme. This is the supreme gift. The reason why is because by someone being willing to share the teachings in the world, that means many people can learn those teachings and train their mind and actually get to liberation or the ending of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness. That's the best thing that you could ever do for your life, the life of those close to you and all of humanity. So an individual who's able to learn them for themselves, practice them for themselves, and has the ability to share them as teachings, this is the very best thing that could ever happen for the world. And not every single enlightened being is going to be able to share the teachings or even have an interest to share the teachings. They might not have that skill. They might still be able to get to enlightenment on their own through the guidance of a teacher, and they know how to do that for their own life and their life practice. But then taking it to the next step where you're communicating that and then guiding and helping people along the path, it's a whole nother level of practice that not every enlightened being is going to have. So the Buddha is explaining here that this is a very important gift. So any gifts that somebody gives in terms of helping a teacher to share their teachings, yes, those material things are needed in order to be able to sustain the teacher's life and provide resources to actually share the teachings. But what you're also giving in that gift to the individual who's sharing the teachings is you're giving a gift of the teachings. You're allowing the continuation of the teachings to continue to flourish and shine in the world by you making offerings to individual teachers who are choosing to share the teachings. So the Buddha is helping you to see how important your gifts and offerings are to support the ordained practitioners and teachers because then they're able to share these teachings with you and with others. Questions on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions this time, sir. Okay. <laughs> so here we go to chapter 74. Yes, sir, I'll read chapter 74. Among gifts, the best is the gift of the teachings. Monks, there are these four powers. A four, the power of wisdom, the power of energy, the power of blamelessness, and the power of sustaining a favorable relationship. And what, monks, is the power of wisdom? One is clearly seen and explored with wisdom those qualities that are unwholesome and considered as unwholesome those that are wholesome and considered as wholesome, those that are blamable and considered as blamable, those that are blameless and considered as blameless, those that are dark and considered as dark, those that are bright and considered as bright, those that should not be cultivated and are considered as not to be cultivated, those that should be cultivated and are considered as to be cultivated. Those that are unworthy of the noble ones and considered as unworthy of the noble ones. Those that are worthy of the noble ones and considered as worthy of the noble ones. This is called the power of wisdom. And what is the power of energy? One generates aspiration to abandon those qualities that are unwholesome and considered as unwholesome. Those that are blamable and considered as blamable. Those that are dark and considered as dark 
those that should not be cultivated and are considered as not to be cultivated, those that are unworthy of the noble ones and considered as unworthy of the noble ones. One makes an effort, arouses energy, applies one's mind and strives for this. One generates aspiration to obtain all those qualities that are wholesome and considered as wholesome, those that are blameless and considered as blameless, those that are bright and considered as bright, those that should be cultivated and are considered as to be cultivated, those that are worthy of the noble ones and considered as worthy of the noble ones. One makes an effort, arouses energy, applies one's mind and strives for this. This is called the power of energy. And what is the power of blamelessness? Here, a noble disciple engages in blameless bodily, verbal, and mental conduct. This is called the power of blamelessness. And what is the power of sustaining a favorable relationship? There are these four means of sustaining a favorable relationship, giving, endearing speech, beneficent conduct, and equality. Among gifts, the best is the gift of the teachings. Among types of endearing speech, the best is repeatedly teaching the teachings to one who is interested in it and listens with eager ears. Among types of beneficent conduct, the best is when one encourages, settles, and establishes a person without confidence in the accomplishment of confidence, an unwholesome person in the accomplishment of virtuous behavior, a selfish person in the accomplishment of generosity, and an unwise person in the accomplishment of wisdom. Among types of equality, the best is that a stream enterer is equal to a stream enterer, a once returner is equal to a once returner, a non-returner is equal to a non-returner, and an arahant is equal to an arahant. This is called the power of sustaining favorable relationship. These monks are the four powers. When a noble disciple possesses these four powers, he has transcended five fears. What five? Fear of loss of livelihood, fear of shame, fear of shyness in communities, fear of death, and fear of a bad destination in a future rebirth. The noble disciple reflects thus, I am not afraid on account of my livelihood. Why should I be afraid on account of my livelihood? I have the four powers, the power of wisdom, the power of energy, power of blamelessness, and the power of sustaining a favorable relationship. An unwise person might be afraid on account of his livelihood. A lazy person might be afraid on account of his livelihood. A person who engages in blamable bodily, verbal, and mental conduct might be afraid on account of his livelihood. A person who does not sustain favorable relationships might be afraid on account of his livelihood. I am not afraid of shame. I am not afraid of shyness in communities. I am not afraid of death. I am not afraid of a bad situation in a future rebirth. Why should I be afraid of a bad destination in a future rebirth? <clears throat> I have the four powers. The power of wisdom, the power of energy, the power of blamelessness, and the power of sustaining a favorable relationship. Excuse me. <clears throat> An unwise person might be afraid of a bad destination. A lazy person might be afraid of a bad destination. A person who engages in blamable bodily, verbal, and mental conduct might be afraid of a bad destination. A person who does not sustain favorable relationships might be afraid of a bad destination in a future rebirth. When a noble disciple possesses these four powers, he has transcended these five fears. Thank you, Miranda.
So I'm going to open up to any questions you guys have on this chapter because it's quite extensive. But I would like to focus in on one aspect of this. And then, of course, you guys can ask any questions that you like about the entire chapter. Here, the Buddha is talking about sustaining favorable relationships. If this is something that you're having trouble with, having harmony in your relationships, you can look at these four means of sustaining a favorable relationship that the Buddha talks about. And this can actually help you to bring your relationships to be more harmonious, which is something we talked about in the group learning program as part of the retreat series, Harmony and Relationships giving or practicing generosity amongst the relationships that you have, whether they're your parents, your life partner, your children, your brothers and sisters, you know, people that you are in regular relationships with, your friends, your coworkers, and people like this. Practicing generosity, even simple, small things, helping people with things can really help to create harmony in your relationships. Having endearing speech where you're not being harsh or aggressive in your speech, this is going to help with your life partners, your children, your parents, your siblings, your friends, coworkers, and other folks. Beneficent conduct is moral conduct. As you improve your moral conduct through the Eightfold Path with right speech, right action, right livelihood, but also even having right intention, which is all part of the Eightfold Path, and understanding how to practice those deeply, which includes the five precepts, this is going to help to maintain favorable relationships because you're not doing things in your relationships that are harmful to other people. And then equality is all about looking at all people as equal. Sometimes in society, we might look at some occupations or some genders or some sexual orientations or others as being higher or lower than others. But if you can train your mind to look at all people as equal, your relationships will be more favorable because you're not putting yourself above or below people. Instead, you're viewing all people as equal. So generosity, enduring speech, beneficent conduct, and equality, practicing those in your relationships will bring about very harmonious relationships. So I'll just open up to any questions that you guys have on this entire chapter. It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we'll go to chapter 75. Yes, let's go to Tonka to read chapter 75, please. The noble giving first discourse. The noble disciple householder who possesses four things is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination. What for? Here, householders, a, no, a noble disciple possesses confirmed conf, confidence in the Buddha thus. The perfectly enlightened one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate knower of the world's unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the fortunate one. Two, the po he possesses confirmed confidence in the teachings, thus he, te uh, he teachings are well Founded by the perfectly enlightened one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. Three, he possesses confirmed confidence in the community, thus, the community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way, practicing the straight way practicing the true way, 
practicing the proper way, that is the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. This community of the perfectly enlightened ones, disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. He resides at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, one devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. A noble disciple who possesses these four things is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination. All right, thank you, Tonka. So the Buddha talks at different times in his various discourses that help you to see what one needs to do in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment referred to as a stream enterer. There's actually multiple criteria, multiple aspects of your development on the path that need to be developed in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer. These are some of those. This isn't all of them. There's multiple things that you would need to do in order to train and develop your life practice to that point. But here he's talking about the same three things that he will typically describe, which is confidence in him, confidence in his teachings, and confidence in the community. These are a standard. These are called the triple gem or the triple jewel. Without confidence in the Buddha, his teachings, or the community, one would not be able to really make too much progress and they definitely wouldn't be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment because there would still be doubt in the mind. So there's, of course, doubt in some people's minds when they first start learning and practicing the teachings, and this can be harnessed to be directed towards motivation and encouragement and a willingness to actually investigate the teachings. And then as you see the progress to the condition of the mind in your life, then this doubt gradually erodes and you build this confidence that he was indeed the fully perfectly enlightened one. His teachings are leading you to enlightenment, that the community you're part of is supportive and encouraging and helping you to do that, that your teacher who's been guiding you, that you have confidence in them and you have confidence in your own ability to attain enlightenment. But for the purposes of this book and our discussion about generosity, there's this one quality that he talks about here, in addition to all the other qualities that you can see in volume five, that whole book, volume five, is dedicated to the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter. But here, this one particular quality as it relates to generosity is a stream enterer is going to be generous. They're going to be joyful in letting go. They're going to be willing to give and share. They're not going to be stingy or selfish. And that's the reason why it's in this particular book. You'll see this same chapter in volume five as well, along with a whole lot of other chapters that are helping you to see what you need to get to stream entry. But if you're just starting out on the path, it's best to start with volume one and build your way up to volume five. You wouldn't be able to just go to volume five and figure out how to get to stream entry. You're going to need to start at the very beginning of the path. So here you can see that even just to get to the first stage of enlightenment, to eliminate a certain amount of craving, desire, attachment, in order to get to that first stage, there's going to need to be a practice of generosity. Even getting into the jhanas, those preliminary phases that you experience before getting to the first stage of enlightenment, you need to distance yourself from sensual pleasures and understand why that's important and how to do that with breathing mindfulness meditation 
meditation and generosity. So you're already kind of starting to build your practice of generosity as you're leading up to the jhanas, you're in the jhanas. And by the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you should have a well-developed practice of generosity. This is ultimately going to propel you towards the other stages of enlightenment and actually to get to enlightenment, which is the fourth stage as an arahant. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Actually, going back to the previous chapter where it was talking about sustaining favorable relationships. Yes. Thomas has asked, um, dear teacher, new quality relationships are appearing. However, I'm not sure if they are right. These ones which are relating to my work situation, they are much better, but my mind and previous life situations are still impacting my daily life. Thank you. Yes. You just started in the last couple months, Thomas, so your mind is going to have pollution in it still. You know, it's going to take you quite a while to build up the momentum and to build up the benefits of learning and practicing this path. Even when you're in the first, second, and third stage of enlightenment, there's still pollution in the mind, so there's still unwise decisions that are going to be made, not as much, not as frequent, not as impactful, but there's still going to be unwise decisions that are being made, so therefore there's going to still be unwholesome results as part of that. So now, even just being, you know, two months of practicing these teachings, even though you're making new relationships, which is wonderful, you're still hindered by the same poisons that you've always had, just a lesser degree, but not significantly less because it's only been a couple of months. So what you would like to do is just understand that each individual situation is a learning opportunity. If you experience a relationship and ultimately it doesn't go well or there's problems or things like this, just look at the things that you've done in those relationships and how you can aim to do better in future relationships. I suggest you go to the YouTube channel and you look for the video in the retreat series called Choosing Wholesome Friends in a Life Partner. This is part of the retreat series. And if you're having trouble finding that, let me know. Because in that class, I provided guidance about how to choose wholesome friends and life partner without actually judging them and cultivating wholesome relationships. So that'll be important for you to learn, but just know that you're still going to be challenged and hindered by these same poisons. There might be some relationships you make now that turn out really well. There are going to be some that don't turn out too well because of the mind's pollution, but in all of those situations, there's something to learn. And as long as you're learning and gaining wisdom, that's the important thing. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time. All right. So we'll move to the next chapter, which is chapter 76. Yes, sir. I'll read chapter 76. The Noble Giving, Second Discourse. In that case, Sariputta, he does not give a gift with expectations, with a bound mind looking for rewards. He does not give a gift thinking, having passed away, I will make use of this. He does not give a gift thinking, giving is good. He does not give a gift thinking, giving was practiced before by my father and forefathers. I should not abandon this ancient family custom. He does not give a gift thinking, I cook, these people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give these give to those not cook, but rather gives a gift thinking. Just as he sees of the elders, that is, Ataka, Vamaka, Vama, heavenly being, Besamita, 
Yamatagi, Angirasa, Bharadawaja, Vaseta, Kasapa, and Bhagu held those great sacrifices, so I will share a gift. He does not give a gift thinking. When I am giving a gift, my mind becomes tranquil and energy and joy arise, but rather he gives a gift thinking. It's an enhancement of the mind, an accessory of the mind. He gives that gift to an Asaqua Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, dwellings, and lighting. Having given such a gift, with the breakup of the body after death, he is born, reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of Brahma's company. Having exhausted that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he does not come back and return to the state of being. All right. Thank you, Miranda. This chapter and kind of different sections of it have shown up in this book at other times. Essentially, what the Buddha is describing here is that if you're going to practice pure generosity, it's important that you do not give with expectations. If you give with expectations, then there's still craving, desire, attachment there. You need to get to the point where you can provide an offering and there's no expectation whatsoever. You're just purely giving it for what the Buddha talks about down here, which is for enhancement of the mind. That's the only purpose of why you're giving is that you know that it's important for you to eliminate selfishness and it's helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So you're going to give a gift because you know that generosity and practicing it is wholesome. And that's the only reason why you would be interested to give. And whatever happens to that gift after that, it's totally up to the person that you give it to. If you give with expectations, then they're still craving, the mind's still holding on, it's not pure generosity, and you could be setting yourself up for discontentedness as your craving either gets fulfilled or it doesn't get fulfilled, you're gonna experience either pleasant feelings or painful feelings, and these conditioned feelings are going to impact the mind. So you need to get to the point where there's no strings attached to the gifts that you're giving. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. Chapter 77. Yes, sir. Let's go to Tonka to read chapter 77, please. The noble giving third discourse. Monk, just as an oil lamp burns in dependence on oil and wick, and when the oil and wick are used up, if it does not get any more fuel, it is extinguished from lack of fuel. So too, when, the, when he feels a feeling terminating with the body, he understands. I feel a feeling terminating with the body. When he feels a feeling terminating with life, he understands. I feel a feeling terminating with life, he understands. On the dissolution of the body, with the ending of life, all that is felt not being excited in will become cool right here. Therefore, a monk possessing this wisdom possesses the supreme foundation of wisdom. For this monk is the supreme noble wisdom, namely the wisdom of the destruction of all discontentedness, his liberation being founded upon trust is unshakable. For that is false monk, which has a misleading nature, and that is true, which has a non-misleading nature, Nibbana, enlightenment. Therefore, a monk possessing this truth possesses the supreme foundation
truth, namely Nibbana enlightenment, which has a non-misleading nature. Formerly, when he was unwise, unknowing of true reality, he undertook and accepted material possessions, how he has abandoned them, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Therefore, a monk possessing this letting go possesses the supreme foundation of letting go. For this monk is the supreme noble letting go, namely the mentally letting go of all material possessions. Formerly, when he was unwise, unknowing of true reality, he experienced craving, desire, and attachment. Now he has abandoned them, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Formerly, when he was unwise, unknowing of true reality, he experienced anger, ill will, and hate. Now he has abandoned them, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Formerly, when he was unwise, unknowing of true reality, he experienced he experienced ignorance and delusion. Now he has abandoned them, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Therefore, a monk possessing this peace possesses the supreme foundation of peace. For this monk is the supreme noble peace, namely the elimination of craving, desire, anger, hatred, and ignorance, delusion. So it was with reference to this that it was said, one should not neglect wisdom, should preserve truth, should cultivate letting go, and should train for peace. Thank you, Tonka. So here the Buddha is talking about essentially someone getting to enlightenment and this is essentially the best thing that can occur because they've eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality which leads to this supreme peace and part of that is letting go. And he's talking about that throughout the chapter and he's talking about that summing it up here at the end that this is what leads to the elimination of discontentedness. It's wisdom, not believing the teachings, but independently verifying them that leads to that wisdom and then it preserves the truth. And in order to do that, one needs to be willing to let go because in the unenlightened mind, there's certain false beliefs, certain opinions, certain views that the mind is holding on to that is leading it to this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, which then there's craving and then there's anger. So an individual needs to cultivate as part of the Eightfold Path and right intention, the intention of renunciation, the willingness to let go. As long as the mind's holding on and holding on and holding on, it's not going to be able to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. And as they do train to let go, and that's what breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is for, 
then you're training for peacefulness. As long as the mind is longing and yearning with craving, desire, attachment, it's not practicing this letting go, which generosity is part of, then it's going to continue to experience discontentedness. It's going to continue to be shaken up. It's not going to be able to experience the peace. Oftentimes, because of the mind's craving and selfishness, we think that all these material possessions is what's going to bring lasting satisfaction or lasting happiness in our life. So we hold on and we hold on and we hold on and we accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And the more that you do that, what you might ultimately discover and realize that it actually leads to unhappiness. It leads to painful feelings. The more you accumulate and the more you hold on. So you need to do the exact opposite of what the unenlightened mind wants to do. The unenlightened mind wants to hold on and it craves permanence and it has all this craving. What you need to do is practice the generosity of giving and sharing more than is strictly required in any given situation of your time, effort, energy, and resources. And that's going to help you cultivate this letting go, which ultimately leads to peace. And what I'm sharing with you now is this wisdom of what the Buddha shared to preserve the truth so that you can get to the point of understanding that truth, seeing the wisdom, cultivate letting go, which then leads to the peace, the enlightened mind, the elimination of craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. On Zoom, Thomas asks, has generosity anonymously fulfilled Buddhist teachings? How about bearing a spiritual name and practicing generosity? I'm not sure if I understand that 100%, but let me try to answer based on what I'm understanding. And once again, you can ask a follow-up if you need to. It sounds like what you might be asked is giving and practicing generosity anonymously, you know, helpful and, and beneficial. And the answer to that is yes, that can be very beneficial because sometimes when we practice generosity, we might be looking for some admiration or to see our name in lights or, you know, for other people to know that this is what we're doing. Instead, if you humbly and peacefully practice generosity, without any expectation of anything in return, including having acknowledgement that you are practicing generosity, this can ensure that the mind is practicing generosity purely for the enhancement of the mind, not for looking for fame or people to notice you or to build a certain reputation that you're practicing generosity just to build your reputation. So practicing generosity anonymously can be very helpful and even more liberating for the mind. I think that does answer that question, sir. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay. So now we're in chapter 78. Yes, sir. The path of the teachings surpasses giving. Surely giving is praised in many ways, but the path of the teachings surpasses giving. For in the past, and even long ago, the wholesome and wise ones attained Nibbana, enlightenment. Okay, so this is, thank you, Miranda. This is just a short uh, little passage here extracted from this section of the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon, where basically it's just sharing that, yes, giving and sharing, practicing generosity, it's praised. But getting to the results of enlightenment really 
surpasses everything. But you're not able to get to enlightenment without practicing generosity. So you would need to develop your practice of generosity that then helps you and propels you to further development on the path, ultimately helping you get rid of craving, desire, attachment to get to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I guess Sir Tonka has her hand raised. Let's go to her for the question, please. Thank you, Miranda. I was wondering, Teacher David, if there's a, a kind of a gap between uh, time-wise when we give up on material uh, goods and pleasures of this world, and uh, we still don't feel that joy of enlightenment in your experience and from what you know, is there such a thing? I believe that other refer to it as a dark night of the soul. Like, is there a period when uh, someone may feel like uh, in some kind of in between or uh, no? Yeah, so as a person is off the path and just getting onto the path and starting to deeply practice the path, the mind is training how to no longer base its happiness, its excitement, its thrill, these conditioned pleasant feelings on some condition. So as it's letting go of these things, the mind doesn't quite know how to get to that natural state of joy where it doesn't need these things, these conditions to be able to experience pleasant feelings. It's trying to figure out how can I have joy without all this stuff that I used to have all the time, you know, whether it's all the maybe substances or certain indulgences that we might have had at different times, you know, all we've ever known our whole life in prior lives as well is to base our inner feelings on some condition. So as you're letting go, the mind can move into this boredom, it can move into loneliness, you can feel sadness at different times, you can feel like, gosh, you know, why am I even doing this? This is so miserable. You can feel very miserable at different times. This is the struggle. But then as you start learning how to find that inner joy naturally, and you're moving away more and more from those cravings, desires, attachments, the mind kind of blossoms and this radiance and this brightness and this joy starts to come into the mind more and more. It's like a lotus flower moving through the murky water. And while it's in that murky water, it doesn't quite know where the water ends and now it can break through the water and get past that murky water. It's just having confidence that if it keeps growing and growing and growing, it'll eventually get out of this murky water. And if you continue with that confidence, that's why the confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in the community is so important. You stay dedicated, determined, and diligent in your practice. Eventually you'll break through that murkiness and get above that dirty water. And now it can bloom. The mind can bloom like a lotus flower. And it just takes time. Everybody's different. There's no set amount of time that it's going to take. But when you're down there and you're feeling kind of miserable because of having given up of certain cravings, remember when the mind's holding on to those things, it's going to have pleasant feelings. But when it doesn't get its cravings fulfilled, it's going to have painful feelings. So this is what I describe of needing to walk through the fire in order to appreciate the fresh air on the other side is you kind of need to walk through that fire and then you'll appreciate the fresh air on the other side because that's where liberation is. You don't quite know where the water ends and the fresh air begins. You got to keep 
having confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment so that you can break through and then bloom. And it's going to take some time. And there's going to be times where you feel miserable. But just remind yourself that this is impermanent. And stay dedicated to the meditation practice. Stay dedicated to your generosity. Stay dedicated to all the individual steps of the Eightfold Path because that's what's going to help you break through and get more and more glimpses of enlightenment and start seeing more and more of the enlightened mind shine through. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yes, sir. I do have a bit of a follow-up question from Thomas. This second part of his question, he's thinking about um, using a spiritual name, so a name aside from their, his given name when practicing generosity. Can that help separate from the ego? If you're going to have a different name other than the given name at birth, this will help you to eliminate personal existence view. Some people do this, but also some people can become very arrogant and boastful about their spiritual name too. So if you pick a spiritual name or have somebody else pick it for you, this is like ensuring that you're not putting your own ego into the choosing of, of a name. You can use this name at any time. It doesn't have to be just when you're practicing generosity. If it's going to be impactful for you, you would need to perhaps use that at other times too. It's not a requirement to eliminate personal existence view, but it's something that some people do in order to eliminate personal existence view because part of the problem is that the mind is associating its name with that's who you are as a person. So one of the ways that a lot of people will practice this is they ask somebody else to give you a name. And then that way, you know that your ego isn't wrapped up in the name that you're given and whatever name is given, then you just accept that name and then start using that name. That is one way to help you eliminate personal existence view, which is part of the ego. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Um, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay. So now we're on chapter 79. Uh, yes. Sir. Let's go to Tonka to read chapter 79, please. To develop a mind of loving kindness is more fruitful than giving. Monks, if someone were to give away a hundred pots of food as charity in the morning, a hundred pots of food as charity at noon, and hundred pots of food as charity in the evening, and if someone else were to develop a mind of loving kindness, even for the time it takes to pull a cow's under either in the morning, at noon, or in the evening. This would be more fruitful than the former. Therefore, monks, you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness. Make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Okay, so thus you should train yourselves, right? <laughs> All right. So here, the Buddha is showing you how, yes, in all this book, he's talking about generosity and how much of a priority it is. But here he's actually prioritizing the practice of loving kindness and loving kindness meditation even above that. And then above loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness, he prioritizes breathing mindfulness meditation even higher than that. That's like the ultimate priority. Of course, all the other steps on the Eightfold Path are utterly important. 
But in terms of a priority, he lists breathing, mindfulness, meditation, loving kindness, meditation. And then after that is the generosity. So it doesn't mean you should do one or the other. He's just helping you to see that, hey, if you're practicing all this generosity, but you're not meditating and doing loving kindness and breathing mindfulness meditation, then you're not really fully developing your practice because there's some people in the world who might just think that, okay, I'll just be generous. I'll just be charitable. I'll just give, 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 but they're not actually working on eliminating the craving, anger, and ignorance from the mind. Specifically here, talking about the anger through practicing loving kindness, that's what eliminates the anger, hatred, and ill will. So if somebody's generous, wonderful, that's great that they're developing that practice, but they also need to pay attention and focus on other things as well. Like here, the Buddha is talking about loving kindness. And of course, he has a whole entire path of things that you need to develop. So it's important that somebody doesn't feel like giving extensively is what's going to lead to enlightenment, that there's other things that need to be practiced. But also, even though he doesn't mention it here, he mentions it in other places where some people feel like if they're in poverty or they don't have much resources that they can't get to enlightenment either. But remember, practicing generosity is giving your time, effort, energy, and resources. So even if you don't have much resources, you could still potentially give time or effort or energy. And for sure, you would be able to then start looking at, in addition to all of that and as a higher priority, your breathing mindfulness meditation and your loving kindness meditation. So if you don't have much resources, but you would like to make progress on this path, focus on the core path of the Eightfold Path, which includes breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness, and then practicing these in daily life as well, because you're gonna to need to practice loving kindness through your speech, your actions, even your intentions are gonna to need to have loving kindness. And then also couple that with a practice of generosity. So don't get caught up in the mindset of, if I just give extensively, that's what'll lead to enlightenment, but don't get caught up that you can't give anything. So therefore I'm not going to progress on this path because you can give time, effort, and energy, even if you don't have resources, and you can also practice loving kindness meditation and breathing mindfulness meditation in your daily life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, so C. Tonkin has her hand up. Let's go for her question, please. Thank you, Miranda. I was reflecting, uh, Teacher David, on loving kindness, and it seems that we can't even call it loving kindness if we have it towards uh, some people and not have it towards others, because then it wouldn't even be loving kindness because it would be then something else. And uh, extending even not just to people, even to animals, like how, uh, like if I'm loving and kind to, to some people, for example, my family, my co-workers, and then uh, uh, I'm not to some other people, or even if I'm uh, loving, if I'm practicing loving kindness toward all people, but if I'm not towards animals and other beings, like would it even be called loving kindness? Yes, it would be because 
as you're developing loving kindness, it's not going to, it's not like a switch where there, where it's either on or off. Instead, you're going to find that there are certain people in the world as you're just getting started with loving kindness, that it becomes very easy for you to have loving kindness for these individuals. And knowing your background, I think it's very easy for you to have loving kindness towards children. And that might come very easy and readily for you. For other people, not, right? They might have a hard time having loving kindness towards children. So everybody's a bit different and you need to be able to experience loving kindness and being able to have that for certain people and certain groups of people. And then you expand it wider and wider and wider until you're able to have loving kindness for all beings. But even in those situations where you have loving kindness for children or your family or coworkers, and you don't have loving kindness towards animals, it's still loving kindness that you're practicing with those human beings, but you just haven't learned how to cultivate it and practice it towards animals. So you can tap into that loving kindness that you have towards human beings in this example in order to help you to then cultivate and practice it towards animals. But it's all loving kindness. It just hasn't reached all beings yet where all the ill will has been eliminated from the mind. Okay, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Thank you. And then on Zoom, Thomas asks, how about loving kindness to strangers? They react differently. And they did. They are two different worlds. Yeah. So for me, even though growing up, I was taught about strangers. At this point in my life, I don't think about people as strangers. I just think about it as this is a person I haven't met yet because there's lots of people in the world that I haven't met and I consider every person in the world to be a member of my family that these are all my brothers my sisters my moms my dads my grandmothers grandfathers these are my children I think of everybody in those terms no matter where they live anywhere in the world and these are just members of my family that I haven't met yet so when I get rid of that thought of a stranger, then the wall comes down and your interest and willingness to interact with them, communicate with them and have loving kindness for them. Whereas if we put up this wall between us and people that we don't know yet, thinking that they're strangers, it might be very hard for you to cultivate loving kindness towards someone who's being labeled as a stranger. But if you just think of them as people you haven't met yet that are members of your family, then you might find that it's much easier for you to cultivate loving kindness towards all beings and extending that out to every single being in every single realm. Thank you, sir. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so our last chapter for today's class is chapter 80. Yes, sir. I'll read chapter 80. Result of developing and cultivating a mind of loving kindness. Monks, suppose there was a sharp-pointed spear and a man would come along thinking, I will bend back this sharp-pointed spear with my hand or fists, twist it out of shape and twirl it around. What do you think, monks? Would it be possible for that man to do so? No, venerable sir. For what reason? Because it is not easy to bend back that sharp pointed spear with one's hand or fist, to twist it out of shape or to twirl it around. That man would only experience fatigue and frustration. So too, monks, when a monk has developed and cultivated the liberation of mind by loving kindness, made it a vehicle, made it a basis, stabilized it, exercised himself in it and fully perfected it. If a non-human being thinks he can overthrow his mind, that non-human being would only experience fatigue and frustration. 
Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness, make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about the power of loving kindness and having fully cultivated this in the mind where there's absolutely no anger, hatred, or will in the mind whatsoever. And he's comparing it to this sharp pointed spear that an individual would find it very difficult to bend and twist that and it would be essentially impossible. And the Buddha is saying the same thing about one who's fully cultivated loving kindness and practice this through of course, loving kindness meditation, developing their mind, and then practicing it in daily life through your intention, speech, and actions that an individual that might try to, you know, kind of uh, shake you up, uh, they would only get frustrated and fatigued because you're going to have nothing but loving kindness towards this being. The Buddhist here is talking about non-human beings. So this would be like a hell being, afflicted spirit, and typically a heavenly being isn't going to be doing that kind of thing, but it's really the hell being and afflicted spirits. This would also include an animal as well. But those beings in the lower realms, they tend to have a fair amount of anger, hatred, and ill will, and they might be coming at you with aggression or hostility or other aspects of mind like this. And if you fully developed your mind with loving kindness, it would be impossible for them to shake you up because your mind is so stable, so liberated from any kind of anger, hatred, or will that it doesn't matter what an individual does, you'll find it impossible to hate another person once the ill will has been fully eradicated from the mind. The mind just doesn't go to that. It's just not capable. It's just not able to hate anybody for anything. If you get to enlightenment and just say you had a child and somebody actually murdered your child and your mind was enlightened, you wouldn't actually be able to even hate the murderer. It just wouldn't be possible. We can't fathom that in the unenlightened state that you know, we think that one of the most horrible things that somebody could do would be potentially murdering our child or our grandchild or something like that. And we think that sometimes we're justified in that hate. But this is because the mind is just untrained. By the time the mind is fully trained and liberated to enlightenment, even in that situation, the enlightened mind would find it impossible to have any amount of hate, even the slightest little bit for an individual who's even murdered your child or your grandchild, your life partner, or somebody like this. So that's what you would like to do is cultivate your loving kindness to that point where there's absolutely no anger, hatred, or will, which is the higher versions on the spectrum, but even the slightest dislike. If you have even the slightest dislike for a particular individual, this is because there's still that poison or that fetter or that pollution of mind of ill will that's still in the mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. I see Thomas has his hand raised. Let's go to the first question, please. Thank you very much. Sir. Yeah, I have a question about uh, uh, loving kindness. I mean, the stages of the loving kindness, because I I, I, I had, I have had some of the, my uh, relationship between the family and stuff like that. I have some uh, not really good and um, uh, when I uh, open my heart and um, give them my love, love kindness, there wasn't uh, respond much. And then um, there was even negative, maybe maybe not negative, but it was different. And um, my question is about the 
And when I when I starting to cultivate uh, loving kindness, they can be improving through the uh, response. Yes. So if you're finding that it's challenging for you to to have loving kindness towards others, continuing to do loving kindness meditation and continue to practice it, it's going to take time for you to develop it because the mind has accumulated a certain amount of ill will as part of the conditioned experiences that you've experienced over this life and previous lives. So you're not going to be able to wear that away in just a couple of months that you've been practicing. And when you're practicing loving kindness, you shouldn't have any expectation that the other person is going to be loving and kind with you just because you're practicing loving kindness. That's not truly what you would like to do is you would like to get to the point where you have no expectation of what the other person is practicing, realizing that your practice of loving kindness is all based on your practice, irregardless of what others choose to practice. So even when people are hateful or harsh or vindictive or jealous, you can still have loving kindness in your mind. It doesn't mean that you need to stay around these people or you need to continue to have relationships with these people. But in the situation where this is occurring, you are in that situation at that particular moment, you would like to get to the point where you can practice loving kindness and have no inner hate or no even slightly dislike towards this individual. And then you know that your mind is fully cultivated and been filled and permeating this loving kindness and has eradicated the ill will. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time. Okay. Well, thank you all for attending today's class. I think this was a very fruitful class. You guys had a lot of wonderful questions and we were able to cover a lot of the chapters and all 10 chapters were able to be discussed, including our meditation as well. So thank you to the moderators. Thank you for all the people who were reading. Thank you for those of you that had questions and thank you for those who just decided to attend and listen in either live or on the replay because learning and practicing these teachings is gonna be very helpful. The Buddha describes that even if you understand just one sentence of his teachings, it's very good for your peacefulness and welfare for a very long time. So next class, we're going to be in chapters 81 through 88. This is eight individual chapters finishing up this particular book, the entire book series, and the entire Pali Canon in English study group, which has been now basically a year and a half of studying through the entire book series from volume two through 13. And then we're gonna restart from the very beginning. Then on Sunday, which is tomorrow, we're just starting out with our group learning program, and we've just restarted it. So we're going to be starting with understanding the first two steps of the Eightfold Path. This is part of a three-part series where I'm gonna be spending an entire class session on each individual section of the Eightfold Path, which is wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. So tomorrow we're gonna to be studying in depth right view and right intention, which is part of the group learning program and is covered in detail in chapter four and the first part of chapter five in volume one. So you're welcome to attend that class. And then on Wednesday, we're gonna be in the second part of our four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation, where I'm helping students build up their meditation practice of breathing mindfulness meditation. So perhaps I'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Take care. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.
There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.